This podcast is brought to you by Jeffrey Abrams, the author of 101 Mission Statements from Top Companies. Please listen to podcast number 731, where Jeffrey and Greg speak about how to craft a great mission and vision statement. In the podcast, Jeffrey provides the listener with great tips on writing compelling and effective mission statements, ones that can be lived by everyone in the organization. If you want to craft a new mission statement, you will not want to miss this podcast interview with Greg and Jeffrey. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Stephen, as I do, every time I come on one of these shows and I'm getting upwards of 750 uh, author interviews on spirituality, personal growth, wellness, mastery, business, a lot of different areas, but those are the genres that we cover. I thank my listeners. Um, You know, they're a blessing to have. And as I see the numbers continue to rise, I really do appreciate everybody out there listening. And today joining us from New York is Stephen G. Post, PhD. And Stephen has been on the show before for a book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthy Life by the Simple Act of Giving. Good day to you, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm fine, Greg. It's nice to be with you again. It's been a few years. It has been. It's been a few years since that book, obviously. You have now this new book, which we're going to be speaking about, which is God and Love on Route 80. And this book is many accolades. Deepak Chopra said it's highly uh, readable and deeply profound book. Post shares his journey to that which is whole, holy, and healing in all of us. And I really do, um, really did appreciate the book a lot. Let me tell our listeners a bit about you. Uh, Stephen is an opinion leader and public speaker. He's a best-selling author, as I said, of Why Good Things Happen to Good People. Uh, He has been quoted in more than 4,000 national and international newspapers and magazines, including Parade Magazine, O Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and has been featured on numerous television shows, including The Daily Shows. Um, He's taught at the University of Chicago Medical School, Case Western Reserve University, from 1988 to 2008. And Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, where he is presently, is a founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics. And he's elected member of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Royal Society of Medicine in London. And he's the author of over 300 articles in peer-reviewed journals, including The Science, The New England Journal of Medicine, Psychosomatic Medicine, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and the Journal of American Medical Association. Well, Stephen, it's a pleasure having you back on again. And God and Love on Route 80 really is a book about your own personal journey. And I really enjoyed learning more about you and your journey. But even as important was the epiphanies and the growth that you articulated along the way for a reader to really get involved in. And you state that the book, God and Love on Route 80, is a poke in the eye of materialism, numbing ideology that all happenings conform to the so-called blind, meaningless law of nature. 
What are those laws of nature that you want to awaken the reader to as they take this journey with you on your own personal journey as well, that you're telling your story? Well, this story, and it is a story, it's a journey. It began when I was a mere 15 years old. So that's quite a while ago. I'm 68 now, believe it or not. But it began in a prep school in New England, St. Paul's School, and I had had a recurring dream. Uh, And this dream uh, guided me. It was a premonition, uh, ultimately, to go out west uh, on Route 80, uh, which I did. And that's a really involved story. (laughs) If you want me to get into that, I'd be happy to. but it's it's about a life that began uh, in following a dream as a youngster, and uh, it has led to uh, a fairly illustrious career. But no one would ever imagine that uh, that my life was shaped by this spiritual notion of an infinite mind, of unlimited love, uh, that pervades the universe and that lies within each of us as an inner light. Uh, I work in medical schools, scientific environments, uh, and I never really had the audacity to speak about the why. The what is pretty obvious. You read my bio, but the why is a much more internal uh, journey of faith that is really wonderfully mirthful, but also uh, very awakening, I hope, for readers. Well, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book, too, is this discernment, right? And I think we may have talked about this even before, because it always comes up when you hear this voice, you know, this, in this case, we'll we'll talk about it, and the story about the angel. Um, You know, how do you know, how would you inform the listeners um, to really know that this is the, as you call it, the oversoul? I mean, you, you quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, there is one mind common to all individual men, universal mind, and Emerson called the universal mind the oversoul, which he said is the unity within which every man's particular being is contained and made one with all other. How do we attain the state of consciousness that creates this level of awareness that we can truly listen and take the guide and go for it like you did? A lot of people would be afraid. Well, so much of this book is about synchronicity, uh, about those completely uncanny encounters that uh, are very, very difficult to explain, in fact, impossible to explain by the normal laws of causality. But when just that perfect person at the perfect time in the perfect place, in the perfect way, in answer to a prayer, uh, a need, comes into your path, uh, then Carl Jung, the great psychologist, called those moments of synchronicity uncaused causality with a capital U and a capital C because they're caused by this oversoul, if you want to use Emerson's term. The Hindus would talk about uh, the supreme being. I like to talk about infinite mind. 
But the fact that our minds are not simply the result of biology, of cells, of tissue, of an organ we call the brain. I mean, one of the stories in the book, and these are all true stories, is when I was a young guy at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, studying with Robert Bly and uh, uh, having a really wonderful time up there in the Northwest. One late January, uh, I was sitting in the coffee shop and a fellow named Andy came in. He had a motorcycle jacket on. He was a little bit uh, uh, blazing in his eyes and and he seemed like uh, uh, he was a little unsteady. He said, who'd like to go for a, a ride on my new Harley Davidson? And like a fool... I said yes, uh, and I went out into the parking lot and I jumped on this big Harley Davidson shovelhead, uh, the fastest motorcycle of the day. It doesn't snow in Oregon, but it gets slick in 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 the winter. It gets a little bit icy at times. He took off. He hit 150, 180 miles an hour through every stop sign, every red light in Portland. Went out to the Pacific Coast Highway, and for an hour we drove due south. To California. I was crying. I thought I was a dead man. And then he did this incredible sweeping U-turn over the midway. And believe it or not, Greg, he dropped me off exactly in the spot where he picked me up. And I staggered across the ravine to my dormitory. Now, back in those days, they had pay phones in college dorms. and I never answered the phone. I never answered that phone. But I Here's somehow... Your mom. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt compelled to pick it up. It now no, notice, okay, it's it's eleven o'clock at night now, right? Your time, California time. It's two in the morning in New York, where my mom is. She she had woken up. She, I I picked up the phone, hello, and it was my mother, Stevie. You're alive, and 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 she had had this incredible premonition. She'd she'd woken up. She was startled. And she thought something terrible had happened to me. So we talked for a while, and I told her about my wild motorcycle ride uh, uh, on on Andy's uh, Harley-Davidson. And uh, I thought to myself from that time on that there's something about the human mind that is mysterious, that is not local, that has this kind of universality to it. And uh, in my case, in terms of awakening to it, well, I had this dream when I was a 15-year-old, but it was also just uh, the process of going through these series of events, these episodes of synchronicity, of premonition, that really solidified for me and was really proof positive that mind is more than matter, that mind precedes matter, and uh, that we're all participants in this, in this universal, infinite, original mind. Yeah. Well, you know, on that line, you know, you this trip westward, you connected with some what I'm going to call very interesting spiritual guides or guides. Uh, and I love that story about Ken Keasley and Robert Bly. Um, you know, and that was one of the questions your mom had had during the point in the book. Can you tell us the impact that these, I'm going to just call them spiritual guides had on you? Well, there were a, a number of them, but... But these I, two guys in particular kind of stood out to me. I mean, it was like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you had lots of them. I mean, if you throughout the whole book in your story, you've got lots of these encounters. 
Well, what happened was it was a, it was a early September uh, evening, dusk, and I showed up having hitchhiked up from the Mission District of San Francisco on the Pacific Coast Highway over the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, and there I am, uh, it, finally in Portland. I've never been to Reed College before, uh, and I was a little bit confused because I saw a very very thin plastic white blow up tent, but about the size of a Seven Eleven, and and it was uh, inflated by uh, an air compressor. There were colors being projected on it. There was a lot of noise, so I walked up to the very first person. I saw, and this guy had a jacket on that was red and black checked, kind of like a lumber jacket. I asked him, sir, is this Reed College? He smiled, revealing an American flag permanently ensconced to his upper right front tooth. He had curly hair, red hair, and he was bald on the top. He had a can of beer in one hand, and on the right hand, he had a cigar-like entity filled with who knows what. He looked at me, he breathed out into my face, and he said, yeah, little buddy. <laughs> and then I asked the next person who was standing near me, uh, a student, it turns out, who was that? <clears throat> and he said that was Ken Kesey. So Ken Kesey had gone up to the Willamette River Valley in Portland, and he was, I guess, writing his second great novel, Sometimes a Great Notion. And this was the afternoon when they allowed him to come to the Reed campus and interact with people, his pranksters in tow. So that night, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I made it to college. And she said, Oh, my God, thank heavens. And I, and I said, But Mom, the first person I met, not the second person, not the third, but the very first person I met, was Ken Kesey. And then there was silence for three minutes because I knew she had read one flu, uh, the uh, Tom Wolfe book, uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. There was total silence. And then she came and she said, so did he have any influence on you? And I said, she said, are you okay? And I said, mom, he had no influence on me one whatsoever. And I didn't you know, do drugs and things. But I said, Mom, he had no influence on me whatsoever. And she breathed a great sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that story in the book, and it was it was really good. Now, um, and Bly you... was the poet in residence at that time. He had come up from San Francisco, and uh, he was a Jungian, and I was a very Jungian-type person. Bly uh, really believed in this notion of a universal mind, and he and he and he thought there was something profoundly uh, significant about this idea of our oneness and our ability to 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 have premonitions and dreams and synchronicities. So I told him my story about the dream in St. Paul's and heading west and my dad's Mercedes, which is another part of this, and he 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 loved it. So uh, uh, it was a great time of my life. It. It was, and it's it's also a I, I wouldn't say a turning point in the book because there's lots of points in this book that really stand out to me, and you know one of them was going going. Let's go backwards now for a minute. We've kind of slipped all the way forward to you going to Oregon and meeting these interesting folks, and you're right on the motorcycle. But you know your conception occurred as a result of your father having an accident on the Long Island Expressway. 
and that is how they met. And you were born a few years after this incident. You state that this was synchronicity in action. Um, do, do you have any belief that you choose your parents? Well, I'm not sure about that, but I will say that, you know, my mom and dad were both working in New York uh, at Macy's, believe it or not. And it was after after the war and uh, they were on what became the Long Island uh, Expressway at that time. I think it was called the Morningside Expressway. Uh, and uh, and my dad rear ended my mother's car and uh, his his car couldn't go anyplace. So she took him home to the potato farm in Bridgehampton out on Eastern Long Island, and the rest is history. Uh, but I always like to think that we have so little control. It's not as though they were married in some uh, social network where people were more or less arranged with one another by family. No, they met really in in the chaos of the moment, giving this infinite mind the freedom to, to be creative and uh, they stayed married the rest of their lives and had three kids. Well, and it, and it's a great synchronicity. I think that's what you're pointing mm-hmm. to is that, you know, we aren't just this uh, connection of neurons in these brains. There's something greater out there. And, you know, when you were five years old, you used to visit with your neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Mueller, and you state that they had a big impact in shaping your life. Um, and you used to go walk down to their house and they would read stories to you and all kinds of things. What did you learn from the Mueller's that's had such an impact in your life and uh, it became part of the story you wanted to let the readers know about? Well, Mr. and Mrs. Mueller were great because we lived on Oak Neck Lane in West Islip, uh, New York, and it was a very lonely road. Not too many friends for me. Uh, So when I was looking a little bit down and out, my mom would say, why don't you go out and help somebody? And I would go out to the Muller's house, and Carl Muller was a very spiritual guy. Mrs. Muller was too. Uh, they uh, got me in the habit of doing chores, and I guess that's one reason why I wrote Why Good Things Happen to Good People. You sort of get acculturated to small acts of kindness. But the incredible thing was that we would uh, burn biblical verses and some Robert Frost verses into these bits of pine, varnish them, and then nail them on the trees because he lived in an area that was surrounded by woods. So you could walk uh, through the woods and you would see on all these trees these incredible verses like, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Or it's better to give than to receive. Uh, and and um, that was very influential uh, on me. Every time I did uh, one of these uh, 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 little little signs on the trees, Mr. Muller would give me a nickel, uh, you know, and he would say, save your nickels uh, for the future. And he said, never trust anybody who smiles all the time. He was a little bit skeptical of human nature on its own, uh, but he believed that we can be filled with this universal mind, call it God, call it whatever you want, and that when that connection occurs, uh, we're much uh, better in what we can do for others. So he was great. And we clammed. We clammed. He, w- he loved to clam, and he would pray. He was incredibly intuitive. He would pray, and, and, w- and then we would go out on his flat clam boat, and we always found 
clams. And then we raked them and we sold them at the Bayshore docks. And that was one of my initial areas of income. Yeah, well, it was it was a great point in the book. So was the part about where your parents met and so on. Now, you, throughout this book, you kind of go back to your story, but you also weave in a lot of uh, elements for the reader to kind of think about. And one of them is you state that so many young people will pursue materialistic goals that disappoint them in the long run. And it's better to give all that up early and follow a pilgrim's path because we need to know ourselves as, in essence, eternal spiritual souls connecting with others, with nature and the universe. How would you advise anyone listening today to have the courage to follow this path and um, not to buy into the fear? I mean, look, you went out west. You had to follow that dream as well. And uh, I think there's a lot of uh, similarities that people have. There's just probably the biggest one is their fear. Well, that's right. So, uh, you know, St. Paul's School is a pretty fancy prep school. You know, I, I would call it sometimes a pricey orphanage. I think I refer to it as that in the book. Uh, and a lot of people uh, have gone there, Gary Trudeau and many others uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, the, the most famous graduate was uh, J.P. Morgan. And the idea was, well, you're going to go on to Wall Street. You're going to go on to uh, uh, business and law. And you're going to be successful in all the external ways. For me, up there in New Hampshire, in the woods, I, I, one of my friends, uh, Ned Perkins, who's, who's grandfather uh, Malcolm Perkins was the editor for F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Ned referred to me as a peripatetic road duck <laughs> because I would be wandering around these beautiful paths, reading spiritual classics, reading the Upanishads, reading all kinds of things. And, and uh, I loved uh, nature and I loved sacred studies and it was a beautiful time. And I had this dream and everybody knew about it because I would occasionally discuss it in class, this blue angel dream where I would uh, see, I saw this silvery mist and then I looked and there was a blonde haired youth leaning out over a ledge about to jump uh, into the waters below. And then there was the face of a blue angel, not that I believed in angels at the time. And it said to me, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the angel, uh, disappeared. And that stuck with me a little bit. The amazing thing was, so I was going to Swarthmore College, but I didn't really want to go to college. I, I, I just didn't feel driven for it. But I had a job that summer after graduating um, in the Bronx to tutor uh, kids. And that was something I really liked doing. I'd done it in New Hampshire. And my sacred studies teacher, Reverend Rod Wells, had set the job up for me. But my parents, thought this was too dangerous a place for me to work. So we had an argument. I'm just going to say, you know, it was a pretty big argument. And finally, uh, my folks said they weren't going to support me for college if I insisted on doing this. So I relented and I said, OK, now what am I going to do? And my dad, was the, he was the president of W&J Sloan Department Store on Fifth Avenue. He said, 
I'll get you a job at Bill DeBono's Lampshade Factory, because my dad knew all the factories around greater New York for furniture and lamps and porcelain and all of that. And, 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 and so I spent two weeks working between two very, very, and I say this respectfully, two very large Italian women in a factory that was not air conditioned, and I was cutting cardboard. And I was so uh, unhappy with the situation that uh, one night I took my dad had a secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which he only bought really to drive us up to St. Paul's and look good. And uh, I, I drove it out that night. Uh, they had another car, so I drove that to the factory. Drove it out to West Hampton Beach, and about 11 at night, I said to my friend Livy, and I had a gal friend named Lee, I said, you know, um, I think I'm going to just go west because I don't feel like I want to go to college, and there's something that's kind of pulling me. There's a push, which is the job situation, you know, but the pull is I just feel intuitively that I have to go do something in the West. I don't know where. And so I drove West. I drove West on the Sunrise Highway, on the Long Island Expressway. I went up over the George Washington Bridge and I saw the sign that said Route 80 West. I'd never been on Route 80. I'd never been West of the George Washington Bridge. And I just drove. And about four or five in the morning, uh, the, now, cars back in those days, um, Greg, they had they had generators. And when the generator broke, all the current was gone. And so this car, it, it, it had seen better days. I managed to get over on the right-hand uh, shoulder. But just about two or three minutes before this occurred, I had been having second thoughts. I thought, you know, all I have to do is do a U-turn. And I can get back tonight or or tomorrow morning, and no one will have known the difference. So I was having second guesses about myself, what I was doing. I had doubts. But when that car broke, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? There were there were no no phone booths, no gas stations. This is the middle of Pennsylvania, uh, not too far from Lewisburg. I'm looking out over miles of cornfields and wheat fields. So what am I going to do? There's no cell phones. So I took a piece of paper and a pencil and I wrote to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655 from his son, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. So you and I, you... I put my thumb out, and this guy Gary in a big white truck came along, and the rest is history. Well, you know, along that lines of your jobs, you in your episode four titled "The Patients and the Rice Balls Route 80 in New York," you speak about your job as a technician at the Manhattan's Dialysis Center on 30th Street. Um. What did you learn from these dialysis patients, and how did you keep your open mind to seeking and learning so many different religious and spiritual houses? Like you said, you would be reading all kinds of different spiritual and religious uh, literature and books, um, but obviously this was this was kind of a turning point, or at least I took it as a turning point in the book. It was a job that you actually liked. You weren't uh, folding cardboard. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I I had a little apartment in Brooklyn Heights. Uh and uh um I found this job. I I I just looked at the New York Post job section and somehow, you know, I prayed a little bit about it and I put my finger down and I saw this job. Uh they were looking for dialysis technicians at the Manhattan Dialysis Center which was in Midtown. So I thought that's interesting and I I I I gave them a call and I went and interviewed and I became a licensed dialysis technician in just a few weeks because in those days the criteria were not very stiff. And and what I learned there these were these big open vat dialysis machines if if you didn't get heparin in the lines to thin the blood the the plastic coils would would explode and you'd have blood all over the ceilings. And in this particular setting, there were about 30 or 40 people in black incliner chairs uh, uh, with their uh, uh, arms out and butterfly needles in their bovine grafts. Uh, and, and you know, it was hard for them. Sometimes they, they, they would not come back for dialysis. And I always knew, everybody knew, that if they didn't come back, they had decided to die, that they were not going to put up anymore with this quality of life. And the predictor of whether or not they would come back repeatedly, because they had this chronic condition, some of them eventually would get transplants. The predictor of whether they would come back and, and be adherent to treatment was whether we treated them with kindness, whether we were compassionate, whether we were personal with them. So I learned that very, very quickly, and I actually became known in the dialysis center. I was the go-to guy. If if people were worried about a patient who was saying, I'm not coming back, I'm never coming back, and we had some amazing patients. Some of them were drug addicted, and when they were dialyzed, they would go uh, into uh, withdrawal and so forth. Uh, it wasn't simple, but I was the guy who somehow or another was able to connect with people, and I, I always could keep them coming back. So I got a reputation for that. <laughs> there was this one night, it was actually, believe it or not, it was Christmas Eve, and I was working a night shift, okay, 13 hours. Um, the um, There was an ex one of the coils exploded, and blood went all over the ceiling. There were blood pressure drops left and right. People were really frantic and uh, sad about being there on Christmas Eve although it was a very multi-religious group. And so I uh, I just, I had my classical guitar with me and I played the, some beautiful music, some Via Lobos and some Alice's Restaurant. And then I proceeded to tell them the story about how I had a dream when I was 15 and how I followed it out West and all the interesting things that happened to me uh, in, in that period, even the fact that I left my dad's car on Route 80 which he did, by the way, eventually get back. Uh, he had it towed back to New York and got it fixed. Uh, but it was really a wonderful event. It went on for about 45 minutes, and everybody was completely elated by this story. And I figured that there is going to come a time when, I, if I can do this, I'll write this book. And that's what God and Love and Route 80 is about. Yeah, and it it, it is a great uh, book. Now, you speak about the that synchronicity whispers as the very underpinning of spirituality for all people. Yes. But to hear the whispers, 
we have to turn down the volume of the external distractions of the world. And I remember doing a program with my son when he got leukemia called Never Mind the Noise, Thriving in a World of Ever-Increasing Complexity. Um, how would you advise to our listeners to turn down the volume so they can hear the whispers? You know, just as she talked about turning down the volume, yeah, my cell volume. phone went, <laughs> went off and I just turned it down. So that was synchronicity right there. In there a way, you I go. Suppose. That's you know, you yeah, were saying turn down the volume, and I just frantically reached over to this desk <laughs> in the office to turn that darn phone off. It was my wife calling, by the way. Well, there must be some synchronicity there. So the question would be: Is what would you tell our listeners about the whispers, the synchronistic whispers, and also turning down the volume? Yeah. Well, you know, Larry Dossie wrote wrote the foreword to this book. It's a beautiful foreword. Only Larry Dossie could write something that eloquent. And he wrote a book called One Mind. Uh, it's an incredible book. And it, it, it really brings a depth of, of thought and perspective on these moments of synchronicity. But you, he has a term. He says you, you have to become a noticer, as in notice. So N-O-O. D-I-C-E-R. You have to become a noticer. Now, you know, you can uh, try to explain away an awful lot of encounters as, you know, purely arbitrary. I guess a statistician would say, and I'm surrounded by statisticians, uh, uh, give it enough time and any event will occur. But some events are just so uncanny and so beautifully timed and they appear as though they're really set up by a cherishing universal mind, a.k.a. God, and, 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 and there we have it. So there are many episodes. One, one example of noticing, so I had been out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan for a couple of years, and uh, then I took a job uh, in New York in Terrytown at the Fordham University Marymount campus, I was actually teaching philosophy at the time. And we had a daughter who was two years old. Now, <clears throat> I just rented a, an apartment in Terrytown, and New York prices are astronomically high. So I pretty much emptied my, uh, my bank account to, uh, to get this thing set. And we were a little low on cash. In fact, we, I only had a few bucks in my, in my wallet. And we are uh, out in parked out in front of the Howard Johnson's restaurant across from the Terrytown Hilton, which is right next to the Tappan Zee Bridge, now the Mario Cuomo Bridge. And, um, you know, and my wife and I, we prayed and we, 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 we said, you know, um, Lord, we could really use a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> we, I mean, my wife was very explicit about that just to get us through the day, get us into the restaurant, so we and then we'll have a nice evening. And tomorrow, my husband will get paid. So lo and behold, uh, my wife says, "Did you just hear something? Did did somebody hit our car? We were driving a a a, a Sentra, a Nissan Sentra." And I said, "No, I didn't. I didn't feel anything." She said, "No, somebody somebody touched the car. Somebody hit the car." So I got out, and there was this huge guy, wonderful. Uh, 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 loud-spoken, 
buoyant guy. He was African-American. He had a white suit on. He had a white hat on. Uh, he could have been 6'5 or 6'6. Or six, six. Uh, and, and, and he looked at me and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, let's just do it this way. Take this $100 bill. Because it was just a little bit of a nick and my car was secondhand. So I said, sir, you are an answer to a dream and to an angel's dream. And so I took the $100 bill, we shook hands, and he took off, and we went in, and we had a nice lunch, and we took care of our daughter for, for, for 24 hours. Wonderful so that, story. You know, that's uh, manifesting that into your life. Now, I, I wanted to give our listeners a, a really kind of a quick uh, rundown here. You have um, an essay writing competition for young people that you hold annually from ages 12 to 21. Uh, to support the principles of religious freedom, tolerance, and love for all humanity. Um, and you hold that. And do you want the listeners to go to stephengpost.com to learn more about that or the Unlimited Love Foundation? How well, they, we they, they can do that. They can go to Stephen G. Post. They can go okay. to unlimitedloveinstitute.org. And they can also go to, and this is actually for the essay itself, uh, loveallmeansall.org. Okay, Love, loveallmeansall.org. Yeah, we just finished uh, a round, and we got lots of wonderful uh, essays in. These are high school juniors and seniors, and, and we're deciding now, our judges are evaluating these essays, and they'll figure out who gets prizes, and these are scholar uh these are uh college scholarships uh i'll tell you what we've gotten is, is it's just phenomenal you know you, you you read about all these struggling young people and you you know yesterday's events and the day before all these horrific uh happenings but the bottom line is that you know young people if if you give them an opportunity to connect with a higher power with deeper truth with spiritual emotions uh, they are such a gift to the world, and it's our fault. It's our fault for not encouraging them rightly, for not raising them to be kind, for not connecting them with spiritual communities. And, you know, when when they're just so separated from anything meaningful, uh, they they get addicted, they do crazy things, they become very destructive. And, and so I, I do these youth essays. I've been doing them for a number of years because... I really, uh, I really like to provide young people with an opportunity to express and be acknowledged uh, at the level of their highest ideals. Well, it is, um, it certainly is a great uh, contest that you have or competition, and we will put links on our blog to that, Stephen, as well. Great. Now, last question for you, and we'll wrap up this interview. And I really appreciate your time. And for all my listeners, we'll have a link to God and Love on Route eighty which will be uh, an Amazon link. We'll put a link uh, to uh, the foundation, uh, the unlimited love institute.org right. and to Stephen G post.com. That's where you can find him. But you said uh, kind of toward the conclusion of this book that Sir John Templeton told you love heals mental illness. He further thought that since love helped heal emotions, it all, it also could uh, help heal physical illness. Um, your Unlimited Love Foundation is the basis of the 
premise. Tell the listeners about your research work, if you would, concisely, and, you know, um, how they could support Unlimited Love uh, Institute. Well, in a nutshell, going way back to 1999, uh, Sir John invited me to chair a conference on empathy, altruism, and agape love, spiritual love, at MIT. And we brought together 15 of the world's finest researchers, 15 of the world's finest philosophers and spiritual thinkers, uh, and we challenged them to spend three days encountering great exemplars of powerful love that seems to be something beyond mere human nature. So Jean Vanier, who founded L'Arche, uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, who invented the hospice movement, they were there. They flew over from Europe. And we were challenging them to use all the methods of science that they typically use to study disease conditions or illness conditions and apply them uh, to these most positive uh, human assets and what can we learn. So that went very, very well. And uh, about a year later, I got a fax from Sir John, who lived down in Nassau in, in the Bahamas. Stephen, can you start an institute to study not just human love, but even the love that made humans, not just human nature, but that love in the universe that can touch upon human nature through the infinite mind and allow us to suddenly feel complete love for someone who's a perfect stranger. And uh, so I faxed back, Sir John, this is great. What will we call it? He faxed back, how about the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love? I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for the Study of Creative Altruism. Why, Greg? Because altruism is a, a drier, more sciencey term. But Sir John was very spiritual. So he faxed back, no, I think unlimited love, up to $8.9 million. And I did what most of your listeners, hello listeners, would do. I, I fax back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And we were able to fund uh, upwards of 70 studies, actually, around the country, from Stanford and Berkeley to, to, to Harvard and Columbia and all over. Uh, and a lot of the initial work on studying uh, how to raise a kind child and studying the ways in which spirituality at its best can elevate our ability to love so that our love is not unwise, is not flickering in and out, is not myopic, uh, that our love is truly the deepest kind of love. Uh, how do people have those experiences? How are they transformed? What sorts of spiritual techniques did they use from meditation to prayer? Uh, what can we learn about these exemplars? And so the result is that we really had an impact on the world because, uh, and I wrote why good things happen to good people, how to live a healthier, happier, longer life through the simple act of giving with Jill Nymark, who's a popular science writer for Discover and elsewhere. Uh, and that became a bestseller. And now everywhere you go, you know, people say, well, you know, it's, well, I, to use my language, it's good to be good. That is a byproduct of helping others. We also feel more gratified. We have what I call the giver's glow, and uh, we become more radiant. And so that is really important. And that's really the, you know, the inside story on that, on why a guy would be so devoted to this topic and sometimes take a little grief from my 
from my colleagues for it because they, they can be jaded uh, is because I had a dream when I was 15. That's the end of it. That's, 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 that's the story. I mean, I, I yeah. followed this path and, yeah. and I'm still following it. You're, you're certainly a living example of somebody who's followed it and, and, and exemplary. And uh, I appreciate you being on the show, sharing your personal story as well as other stories um, about this spiritual journey that you've taken, but more importantly for the reader, um, what they can glean from this book and move forward on their own spiritual journey as a seeker, awakening, trying to find their way. Um, this book will really help you because it'll help to ground you uh, and put you there. Stephen uh, Post has been on with us today, joining us from New York. It's God and Love on Route 80. We'll put a link to that bo uh, book as well as to the foundation link, um, the unlimitedloveinstitute.org will be up there, as well as to Stephen's uh, uh, website itself, stephengpost.com where you can link to some of the articles, the other books he's written and so on. Stephen, again, it's always a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you for taking the time and uh, imparting your wisdom and spiritual insights uh, to our listeners. Thank you, Greg, for doing such a beautiful job as you always do.